Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, you're listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joshua, and my guest today is Joan Scott, whose work in gender and French history should be familiar to us all. Joan is here today to discuss her latest book titled On the Judgment of History, which is a compilation of a series of three lectures which she delivered in 2019 at Columbia University. Joan, you, of course, are a good fan of the podcast, and you are here with us just last year, in fact, so a very warm welcome back to New Books. Thank you. Well, you were on our podcast last July to talk about what was then your 2017 book, Sex and Secularism, which is a, a humongous topic in its own right. But the topic of this book, the nature of historical judgment and this age-old idea that history will somehow redeem us, is arguably an even broader topic and no doubt a very challenging endeavour. How did you come to decide on this topic for the lectures in this book? Well... You know, I, I say that a little bit in the in the preface. In 2017, after the Charlottesville uh, demonstrations, uh, when we were all horrified by the sight of, or many of us were horrified, the president wasn't, but <laughs> by the sight of, of, of Nazis marching and Ku Klux Klan uh, uh, torches, I said to myself in the kind of, um, you know, the way when you're sort of thinking about something, I, I sort of said, exasperated to myself, whatever happened to the judgment of history? Um, thinking about the fact that, you know, once something like Nazism or the, even the Ku Klux Klan were declared somehow outside the pale of moral uh, social behavior, they come back. Why is it, how, how did they come back? What is it, how, and, and so, and then I thought to myself, you know, whatever happened to the judgment of history? I said to myself, well, Joan, um, do you really believe in the judgment of history? And I thought, no, I really, you know, in in some ways I don't. I don't believe that history is going to inevitably redeem us, that the future is always going to be better than than the past. But it became a, a subject of curiosity to me. You know, what, how has the notion of the judgment of history persisted even to come as a kind of knee-jerk reaction on my own part to the Charlottesville uh, massacre, or Charlottesville demonstrations. And so then I was invited to do these lectures and I had finished not long before finished Sex and Secularism. And I thought, I just can't do another book about gender uh, <laughs> and history. I-, I think I've said everything I needed to say or wanted to say. So. You know, when you have to do a series of lectures, you're supposed to come up with something a little bit different or new. And so I thought, well, what would happen if I uh, took up this notion of the judgment of history and tried to historicize it, look at it, not just as a a large philosophical concept, because I'm a historian, not a philosopher. Mm -hmm. uh, What would what would what would happen? And I had to give three lectures if I gave three lectures on different cases that illustrated different aspects of uh, what were seen even at the time as delivering the judgment of history. So that was the inspiration. Um, And I started reading and and, um, looking around and I decided on the three cases that um, I guess we're gonna talk about in a few minutes because they seemed to me both in terms of history but also in terms of their relevance to the topics, which were um, fascist Nazism and and um, and, and the Holocaust, um, apartheid in in South Africa, and the ongoing debates about reparations for slavery in the United States, and so those three things were kind of on my mind, and I thought, okay, let me use those as uh, ways of thinking through this question, and. Of course, in your past work, you've also reflected on many instances where I think we could say humankind may not have necessarily learned from the lessons of history. I'm looking at your 2007 book, The Politics of the Veil. Right. Did you 
in any way draw on any of your previous work or your previous books to come to the conclusions you reached in these lectures? I think only in the sense that I was thinking about, in all of them, I've been thinking about history. I mean, the gender and the politics of history, my, my collection of, of the, that early collection of essays, which is still very much in print and very much read, and is also a Columbia University Press book, <laughs> like this one is. Yeah. Um, they, I think I've, I've, I've always thought of the challenge of, of feminism and feminist history as having to speak not only to the story of women in the past, but to the way in which history for so long or historians for so long ignored women, the way in which women were thought not to be so much agents of history uh, as, as uh, compared to what men could achieve in politics and other areas. So I think I've thought for a long time about um, the relationship of whatever it is I was working on to some, something we could call history in the more theoretical or, or philosophical sense. So in that sense, there's a connection. But, you know, people who are used to reading me for gender um, are not going to find it in, in this book. I mean, I, once I, I feel apologetic about that. And on the other hand, it just was the moment that I was asked to do this at having finished one book on, which is full of the uh, questions about gender and, and sexuality. I just felt like I needed to think about something else in a hard way that I hadn't thought about in the same way before. Yeah, sure. And you did say you started thinking about this question in 2017. Now, three years between 2017 and now isn't a particularly long period of time, not at least for a historian. But nonetheless, I was wondering how your position and how your beliefs might have evolved in those three years from when you first started thinking about this issue to now. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting question because in, in, when I gave the lectures at, at Columbia, a lot of the people in the audience pressed me very hard about what my own view of history was. Uh, did I think that if not that history would redeem us in the end, um, did I think that uh, we needed to think that it was possible to have a better future in order to mobilize politically? What was the relationship between my views of history and my views of politics. Um, and, and I guess, if anything, I feel more convinced now about what I say at the very end of the book in the epilogue, mm -hmm. that um, once, if we've giving up on the idea of history as redemptive, doesn't mean giving up on the idea of changing things in the present. Uh, we can't guarantee the future uh, but we have to act to bring it about. Uh, there's no guarantee that we will. <laughs> there's, there's no, um, you know, there's, there's no, uh, we can't even convince ourselves that we are on the good side of history. You know, in these debates right now that are going on mm -hmm. about uh, uh, Trump and, and um, Biden and all of the rest, and almost every day somebody says something about, well, history will be the judge of what they say. Uh, history will be the judge of um, these actions. Uh, in the end, history will look back <laughs> on this moment yeah. and, and see how terrible it was. Uh, if, if you don't believe that, uh, which I don't, um, then what is it that can move you to act? And what I say at the end of the book is that we almost have no other choice. Um, that is that, that um, refusing to accept conditions that seem to us unequal, um, impossible, um, in the case of democracies, anti-democratic or authoritarian, refusing to accept all of that does not mean that we know that a better future is possible, but it does mean that we have to act to make it happen, to act as if uh, we could bring that about. So. Uh, I guess I feel that in the face of what often feels like great despair right now, I don't know if you guys listened to the debate last night, but uh, despair is, is, despair doesn't seem to me to be an option, even as I feel uh, worried and despairing about the conditions that are, that, that exist now. So my sense is that one has to try to make history, even if history is not going to 
cooperate <laughs> with. It doesn't promise us that if we act in its name, we will bring about the, the desired ends. Well, that's, a, that's a wonderful way of thinking about things. And it does bring us very helpfully to the content of your book. And you mentioned earlier um, the popular appeal of these uh, calls for history to be the judge. We see this idea of history being the final judge of one's actions being thrown around very often. And mm -hmm. without, this is a very compelling idea to quote Theodore Parker, as you do in your book, that the arc of the moral universe, while long, somehow bends towards justice. Why do you think such appeals to history as the final arbiter of truth are so common and so popular? Well, partly I think it, it comes from, the, from, from a, a 19th century vision of history, a philosophical notion of history as an inevitably progressive uh, movement through time. Mm -hmm. uh, one that has as its telos, as, as some people have written, the nation state itself. So what comes into existence with the nation state, with the modern Western nation state, uh, is a vision of history as necessarily progressive, moving towards better and better and better uh, things in the, in the future with, with the state as the kind of embodiment of uh, the possibilities that the progressive future uh, offers. And I think that vision is um, deeply rooted, at least in Western um, societies and um, very hard to get rid of. You know, it's sort of, even as in the, sometime in the, in the 20th century, probably in post-World War II period, there is, many people have written about this, a loss of belief in a master narrative of history, that it's inevitably progressive and it's going to take us to uh, the promised land, whether it's a secular promised land or a, a religious one. Um, that notion sort of resides still in popular consciousness, um, even in the consciousness of historians. I mean, yeah. myself included, that's how I started thinking about this, uh, this project. Uh, so I think I think that's some of it is that it it's there to be drawn on and looked to in popular consciousness as a, an idea that we can aspire to or believe in. I also think that that it has a kind of consoling quality to it. That is, when things are really terrible, um, it's it's enormously consoling to think that you know even if not in my lifetime in the lifetime of my grandchildren, things will be better. And if I continue to act the way I've been acting and engage in the political work that I've engaged in, then I will help bring about that future. And, and so I think that, that fantasy, and it is a fantasy, operates as a consoling, um, a consoling thing in, in, in moments like this, uh, when um, despair is the other alternative. Uh, you know, when, when you look at, I think I quoted in, in the book, I think it's, it's Max Horkheimer and he's writing in 1934. So he says, when you're at the lowest ebb, when you are at the lowest ebb exposed to an eternity of torment inflicted upon you by, another, by other human beings, you cherish as a dream of deliverance, the idea that a being will come who will stand in the light and bring truth and justice for you. You don't even need this to happen in your lifetime nor in the lifetime of those who are torturing you to death. But one day, whenever it comes, all will nonetheless be repaired. It is bitter to be misunderstood and to die in obscurity. It is to the honor of historical research that it projects light into that obscurity. And, and it's interesting that um, rereading the Horkheimer, Adorno, Benjamin, Frankfurt School philosophers whom I had read before, in this context right now, now, I understand them better than I think I ever did, because I not only um, philosophically can gather what it is they're trying to say, but I feel as if I'm living in a similar moment. For them, the 19, 1934 is when he writes that. The, the image of fascism ascendant um, is, is, leads him to, to write in those terms. As, as the others, you know, they're all looking around and saying, how, this, how could this have happened? We never expected this to be 
what would follow from the triumph of the Weimar Republic or the Russian Revolution or you know whatever these these major events that seem to be bringing about a different future. How could it happen that it was all falling apart? And and it feels the same um, for me who. Uh, my most sort of politically active moments were in the 60s and 70s when I was in uh, college and graduate school and when everything seemed possible, you know, when it seemed like we were creating uh, a better future. So um, the notion of the kind of consoling vision, an ultimate historical judgment, I think continues to be very powerful. Well, I suppose then many ways, fantastical as the idea of using history as the arbiter of truth may be, it's something that we don't just rely on, but I think it might be an indispensable idea to all of humankind. Would you say that? I don't know about all of humankind, <laughs> because I do think that this vision of history is, is, a, is a modern Western concept to start with. How it gets disseminated and absorbed and elsewhere in the world is, is I, I don't know, but um, I feel most comfortable talking about it within its historical limits. That is a, as a product of the 18th and 19th centuries um, and as uh, somehow um, as a product of the 18th and 19th centuries and, and therefore deeply rooted in the ways, the, the, even the, the popular ways of thinking about time um, and, and history and events, but I, I, I don't think I would make it a claim. It's one of the things I, I think I'd criticize about Hegel is that he does make it a universal claim. Well, I think that brings us very nicely to the content of your book. You alluded to this earlier, the, the concept of the nation state being the tailors of history. Now your book comprises three chapters, each expounding on a different interpretation of the judgment of history. Let's start with the first chapter, um, which is the Nuremberg trials and what that tells us about the nation state being, you know, the culmination of everything in history. Could you walk us through that case study? Sure. Um, the interesting thing about the Nuremberg Tribunal, reading it from the vantage with my set of questions about the judgment of history was how clearly the head of the tribunal, uh, the Justice Jackson, who was an associate justice of the Supreme Court, um, articulates that. We are here, basically, he says, to deliver the judgment of history. Yeah. Uh, that is to uh, condemn um, Nazism to the past, to uh, look at the horror created by uh, those who took over the German state, the criminals who took over the German state, and um, the point of the tribunal is to make sure that this will never happen again, to remind us of what could happen if these excesses came about and to um, prevent them from ever coming again. So the idea was that you both would look at this history, uh, you, and on the other hand, you would be able to consign what had happened to the dustbin of history. And what I argue is, of course, the notion of the moral judgment had to do with a victory in war, that, that uh, it was the allied forces defeated Nazis. Uh, and um, that was, in a sense, the proof of the judgment of history. It was their victory brought about their ability to make that judgment, but it was its, its own judgment. That to me was the way in which uh, the problem of the nation state and the nation state as a as as resting a certain form of ethno-nationalism uh, which was common to all of the allied uh, powers at the end of the war has to be protected against Nazis so that the Nazi state becomes an exception to what normal states actually do Mm -hmm. um, normal the Russians are there so it's not a democratic state but normal modern states can do and it, there are all of these moments and, and I was very struck by this when, when read the materials uh, when Jackson says well 
if the Nazis hadn't engaged in aggressive warfare, war, war is, is, is okay to engage in, but aggressive warfare in which they were attacking other nations, um, if they hadn't engaged in aggressive warfare, we wouldn't be able to make these judgments yeah. because the internal affairs of any nation are up to that nation. Other, other nations cannot intervene. We in the United States have our problems with minorities. And this is a period in which lynching is continuing to go on in, in, in the South uh, yeah. against uh, African-Americans. And he says, uh, in fact, if the Nazis' treatment of the Jews had just been a domestic problem, we wouldn't have been horrible as that was, we wouldn't have been able to intervene there either. But since it was preparation for what they would then go on to do in Poland, other parts of the world, uh, we could intervene because it became a matter of international concern rather than national concern. So the, 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 the double sort of thing of protecting a certain image of nation state on the one hand and uh, casting Germany outside the pale of what counted as a nation state is very much what seems to me to go on at, at, um, at Nuremberg. And that, that's sort of part of my argument is that uh, he have a tribunal of nation states delivering a judgment of history, but um, leaving in place what some of us, and Hannah Arendt is one of the people I cite in, in this, yeah. look, at, look at as the problem of nation states, which is ethnism, the notion that you have a homogeneous population based on language or race or religion or, or you know, something, uh, something that, that defines us and them. Um, that is left in place. And, and you know, for my initial question, whatever happened to the judgment of history, the answer in that chapter is the, the failure to define what in fact was probably one of the sources of the Nazi excesses leaves in place the possibility for those kinds of problems to arise again. The mistreatment of minorities, um, the, uh, the kind of racist uh, behavior of uh, the very nation states that were involved in um, making the, the, the judgment history. So th that, that chapter as the, as the next chapter are both interested in looking at what the limits are in the memory of the judgment of history uh, that open the possibilities for uh, less than the perfect future uh, arrive, if not to leave in place the very elements that were partly responsible for what happened um, in, in the situation that was supposed to have been closed off or foreclosed as something that could never happen again. Well, it seems to me that a major flaw of the system of this judgment of history as enacted at Nuremberg um, wasn't just the assumption that the nation state is, you know, as you say, the telos of history, but also the fact that the people enacting this judgment were political actors with vested interests and yeah. people who are part of the state apparatus. I'm wondering if you think that historians, supposedly impartial and apolitical, would be in some ways better actors than political ones in enacting history's judgment? I don't know. <laughs> that's, a really, that's a really good question. Um, do I trust historians more than I trust politicians? Um, I, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I'm not sure that there aren't as many disagreements among historians uh, about, in fact, what happened at Nuremberg as uh, there would be, there was, or would be among among political figures. Uh, I I just don't know. Uh, I, I think I think my answer would be that that historians probably aren't in the best position to make policy. Um, <laughs> because once you're in that position, you, you don't have the distance on it that those, those of us who do history are supposed to have. That is, when you're in a situation in which you have to make practical, pragmatic decisions, yeah. you behave differently from the way you would 
if you're looking at this material as I did with a kind of critical, a long-term critical distance. Sure. And, and that, you know, that would also suggest that there are lessons of history to actually be learned. And I'm not sure <laughs> that we ever learn from the lessons of history. Well, let's talk about the nation state as a tales of history, which was the, the overarching theme in the first chapter. I get the sense that the ramifications of this assumption extend well beyond the realm of just historical judgment, because very often we see the idea of the nation state being superimposed on many of our understandings of history. If you look at, for for instance, medieval societies and polities, there's a tendency to implicitly assume that these polities constituted early attempts at state formation when perhaps they did not. So do you think the assumption that the nation state is the telos of history fundamentally threatens not just what it means to render history's judgment, but more broadly, what it means to study history as an academic field? Yeah, I think it does, absolutely. Um, because it, it limits, what it does is it leads you to accept the, the linear notion of history that, whose telos is the nation state. Uh, there's a, a historian called um, Massimiliano Tomba, who's writing a lot about uh, history and temporality. And his, his, he's somebody you should interview in these things. He has a book that's called, um, what is it called? Insurgent Universality, uh, which came out last year. Um, I think it's, it's Oxford University Press. Um, and what he argues is that, in fact, it's the nation state that needs to create this coherent singular line of development, which cancels out all of the, the complexity in as history happens, the fact that there are uh, other groups contesting the form that the that, that political organization should take, uh, that are looking for alternative ways of, of organizing politically, and that these um, these are left out or deliberately obscured if the story that we tell is basically the story of the emergence of nation states and then their political uh, interactions internationally and otherwise the actions of people within the nation against even resisting or against the nation. But the nation, if the nation is the focus of the whole thing, you're basically left with a singular temporality that is linear and probably usually progressive uh, that doesn't leave room for seeing how in fact history is a much more complex set of conflicts and their resolutions uh, over time. Mm -hmm. And do you see this assumption of the nation state being so central um, to understanding of history as part of a broader trend in which we we take operative categories that we have in the present and we apply them to understandings of the past when they may not necessarily fit? Do do you Mm -hmm. think it's, it's a worrying trend in this respect? I actually think the trend is in the other direction. I think the trend has been away from um, a concentration on political history to other forms of history, cultural history, social history, and so on. I think in the, in the last maybe 15 or 20 years, there's been a, a and, and part of that is the challenge of uh, women's historians, uh, historians of, of African-American uh, life or, or of slavery, of colonialism. I mean, I think there's been something of a move away from the assumption that the nation state is, uh, is it, is the place that carries history uh, forward. Although there still certainly are beliefs that if you don't have a nation state, you aren't part of history. Um, I mean, I think that the, the, the Israel-Palestine conflict has been, organized, has been analyzed in part in those terms, that the reason the desperate reason for a Palestinian state is that you don't count as historical uh, actors if you don't have a state uh, of your own. Uh, so, so it's there, you know, it's there as part of the discourse, but as the focus of historians, I think the state and politics has been, um, has been sort of pushed to the side in order to bring in other kinds of concerns and, and, um, and other interests. I mean, the interesting thing, and we can skip in in this to the last chapter for a minute, is the the movement for reparations for slavery is one that calls into question the ability of the 
the, the nation state to deliver on the promise of justice. Yeah. And, and what uh, one after another of the, the people who are advocating reparations say is, look, um, there was the end of slavery and then they, there was reconstruction and then there was the, the, the taking back of reconstruction and then there was this uh, Brown versus Board of Education and the integration of schools, but at the same time, the redlining of uh, districts in, in neighborhoods so that segregation became the, the, the definition or segregation of uh, African-American populations became a, a new form of, of um, separation and discrimination. Uh, and, you know, uh, last week, uh, Trump issued a, 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 another of his, I think of them now as faux executive orders, but another executive order in which he says, you know, the teaching of history can't, is racist if it tries to blame another group for the oppression of a group. So if you say that uh, white supremacy has been part of the problem of of discrimination against blacks uh, in America, you are racist because you're discriminating against whites as uh, as a group. I mean, it, it's this it's this torturous document to read, um, but it basically says, you know, we've been doing everything right. It, it, the, the arc of justice is the arc of the universe is slow, or or it takes a long time to. But we've been delivering justice, and in the 47 years since Martin Luther King. Um, delivered his I Have a Dream speech. We fulfilled the promise of that dream. Meanwhile, you have Black Lives, Black Lives Matters groups demonstrating in the streets of uh, most American cities. You have um, the killings of, of Blacks by police day after day that, that come to the fore. So, and, and what the reparations movements are doing is saying, look, there has not been this progress Indeed, the story of the American nation is a story of a nation founded on slavery. Let's move the, the, the um, timeline from 1776, the Declaration of Independence, to 1619, when the first ship arrives on American shores with slaves in them. Uh, and let's talk about the ways in which slavery is foundational to the economic and political development of, of the United States. Um, and so, you know, we're, the, the, what the reparations movements are doing is saying this history, which looked to the nation state to redeem us or to deliver justice, is the antithesis of that. It's a history which has not been realized and will not be until we as a nation take account of the things that it leaves out. Well, we'll definitely have to get back to this topic of reparations later on in the podcast, because it's a very important part of your book. But I'd like to first set the context of this broader discussion on the judgment of history by looking at the case outlined in your second chapter, which tackles the limits of forgiveness in post-apartheid South Africa. What is the main lesson of this case study? Well, it's a different, it's a different story as, as the, the people at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission recognized. That is, there was no victory in war. Um, apartheid ended with a political settlement. Uh, the, as, as I quote, I think Desmond Tutu says, you know, they still had all the guns, the, the, the white uh, right-wing forces, the protectors or defenders of apartheid. So they had to look for a way of um, reconciling a nation that had been rent by uh, by protest, by war, by dis discrimination, and so on and so forth. And there is, at the, this was fascinating to me because I didn't know it before, there is at the beginning of the, the idea for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission actually comes from a Gramscian Marxist who, uh, <laughs> named Kadar Asmal, who, um, uh, who says that a, a commission like that could be cathartic because it would bring to the fore the stories of people who had been victims of apartheid, but they would not be victims, see themselves as victims. They would see themselves as active, um, active agents calling to account the past of, of this country and thereby being able to uh, 
activate themselves to bring about a different, a different future. And so that's his vision of it. But Desmond Tutu, the, the uh, Anglican archbishop, becomes the head of the commission. Yeah. And his vision of what the commission is to accomplish is a different kind of catharsis, the catharsis of forgiveness, that the victims of apartheid could come forward and tell what had happened to them, recount what had happened to them, and in some way or another, forgive the, um, what had happened in order to launch a new future. And that notion of forgiveness, which is a much more Christian, um, um, passive one, yeah. is the one that, um, that prevails in, in the commission's deliberations. And what the commission doesn't deliver, and here again, my interest in how things continue after the end is supposed to hap happen, what they never really are able to confront are the structural conditions upon which the apartheid system was based. They do confront some of the political ones, some of the, the ways in which um, laws, past laws and other kinds of laws prevented uh, the free movement of labor, the, the enslavement, if not the enslavement, the indenturement and the indebtedness of, of workers, of African workers. But what they don't sort of come up with is, I think, a critique of the property system upon which much of the, the system was based. So that, for example, um, land, well, whites are able to keep their land and their, and their property. The, the great proportion of wealth of South Africa is still in the hands of, of white landowners or white capitalists. And so ending, establishing a black majority for the, for, for the political nation does not address the underlying economic conditions which held inequality in place. Um, and, and that in part has to do with, with I think, there's no victory in war. And so there's a, a negotiated settlement that actually leaves in power a great deal of, of um, if not in political power, it, in economic power, a great deal of the wealth that had um, already been established. So, so there, um, you know, the, the great promise of, of Nelson Mandela and of the, and of the rainbow nation um, doesn't come into effect. Yes, apartheid is, is set to rest. Uh, apartheid will not come back in the form that it was. But the limits of the solution, the limits of the delivery of justice are um, held in place by uh, a legal and an economic system that um, perpetuates inequality, I guess, and injustice. Mm -hmm. And another theme that really underlies this, um, both the Truth and Reconciliation um, Commission, as well as the Nuremberg Trials, um, as you said, was this idea that history is linear, that we move only forward. And something that stood out to me in this particular chapter was the metaphor of a bridge. In fact, two metaphors, two different metaphors of how yeah. history is likened to a bridge. I think it's a beautiful way of visualizing the different attitudes one could have towards history. Could you tell us a bit more about this metaphor? Yeah, that's really, it, it's really interesting. You know, it's one of the things when you're doing this kind of work, things strike you. And I kept seeing this on the part of many of the, of, of Tutu and the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission people were saying, the commission itself is a bridge to the future. And the notion is that it's a one-way bridge. From the past, the commission is the bridge which allows us to traverse the difficult conditions of a negotiated settlement but it's gonna end us up on the other side. And the other side is the rainbow nation of, of uh, a non-racial, uh, integrated liberal uh, democracy. And then there's the, the image that, that I use to sort of counter that, which is Michel de Certeau, who says, no, a bridge is not a one-way street. Um, a bridge, you go back and forth across the bridge. A bridge takes you to different places, but then you return. Um, and, then, and, and that struck me as a complicated image 
of the story I was trying to tell. Uh, people cross the bridge uh, looking to establish various new kinds of things, but they come back to the old place that they were. And in that old place are at once uh, new arrivals and former arrivals and how you negotiate the traffic across the bridge uh, complicates that linear view of history in, in really profound ways, I think. Yeah, um, and I think talking about the final chapter, which you, which you very kindly overviewed for us earlier, we see again the idea that history isn't just progressive, it isn't just linear, and you have this bridge in history where you're going forward and backward, progressing and regressing at the same time. Um, one thing that has persisted throughout these three narratives, and, and you talked about the reparations movement earlier, seems to be the persistence of structures of power and the ability to limit our judgment of history, you know, very narrow vision of the judgment of history. Could you say a bit more about these structures of power, what challenges they pose to us and how we can overcome them? That's a really big question, yeah. <laughs> I think the... So if we, if we, I think it's very different, but I guess I would say that those who are entrenched in the structures of power, particularly in the first two cases, or the first case, the political ones, are the ones who try to set the terms of, you know, in all of the debates uh, a couple of months, a month or so ago about uh, the judgment of history on Trump, uh, the Attorney General Bill Barr said, uh, history is written by the victors and we're going to win. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's actually what Benjamin says too about, about uh, you know, has the angel of history kind of, but anyway, the, the, we need to go into that. But the, the, so there is, I think they, I don't think the victors always write history, but I think the notion of power that I would have is that those who are in command or politically in control want to stay that way. And so um, they will do what they have to to accommodate resistance or protest or change. Uh, in the first case of the, of the, the triumphant uh, democracies at the end of World War II, the protection of the notion of the nation state is tremendously important and the exclusion of the Nazis as uh, not just a, a perverse example of the nation state, but as outside the realm of what we can think of as acceptable nation, as a barbarian kind of, of development. There's nothing they have in common, they had in common with us. Even though, as I say in that chapter, colonialism could, uh, the colonial practice of the British in India or the French in, in um, the Maghreb, in, in West Africa or in, in um, could, could be offered as examples of uh, the problems that attain to uh, certain kinds of organization in the nation state. So, but holding on to power is uh, a tremendously important part of that and writing the history to conform to those notions is also, is also uh, really important. Um, and so I think, I think in some ways, the, the story of history is the story of, uh, of powerful groups wanting to hold on to their power, justify it in terms of their fulfillment of some kind of mission of history, um, and excluding or resisting attempts to impose alternatives or transform the, the, the power that they hold. Now, in the case of apartheid, the, the, the white supremacist political elite lost uh, and they were, uh, they were out of, of power. But the, uh, the, what I argue, I think, is that the underlying economic arrangements not having been changed led to problems of a kind that were not fully anticipated by those who welcome the end of, of apartheid as the uh, beginning of, of, you know, the new, the new era, which would be kind of more, um, more, more promising and just than the one, the one that had come before. Well, a strong 
antithesis to the, the structures of power that we've just talked about is embodied in the reparations movement, which is essentially an attempt to rewrite history, not from, I think, the victor's perspective or, or the powerful's perspective. Do you think the reparation movement offers us a useful model for a more inclusive interpretation of history um, and hopefully, you know, a more progressive one? Yes, I do. Um, progressive might not be the right word, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but uh, a more critical one, I would say. Uh, yes, I think it does, because what it says is, what the reparations movement says is, look, there have been um, criticisms of slavery from the beginning, um, and there are all sorts of examples of people demanding reparations long before the end of the Civil War. Um, and the, the reply has always been less than satisfactory in terms of granting um, what is being asked for. Uh, and so what the nation has incurred is a huge debt. And I think the debt is much symbolic as it is. I mean, it is certainly financial, but it's, it's the symbolic notion of, of an unpayable as well as unpaid debt of the white nation to its um, African-American population that is at the heart of the reparations movement. And what that requires is a rewriting of history. It, their argument is it's a rewriting of history in which a linear progress is no longer to be told, but uh, advances and setbacks, uh, a kind of undertow of resistance to the end of inequality and discrimination. Uh, and that story has to be faced fully uh, and, and incorporated into our understanding we are as a people if justice is ultimately to reign. And that means, of course, that the judgment of history is not being delivered by the state. In fact, the state has been incapable of delivering it, but the judgment of history is being delivered by the, um, those who have been left out, who have been refused incorporation. I don't want to call them victims because the demand for reparations, in fact, is a refusal of the victim status. It's more a redefinition of victims as creditors. You owe us and we are coming to call in the debt. And I found that a very powerful way of thinking about um, the non-victim position that, that is taken by people who are demanding reparations. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's that creditor-debtor um, relationship that is being insisted upon. Mm -hmm. And do you think more broadly the reparations movement also blurs the line between what is the past and what is the present? Uh, has it forced us to rethink what exactly entails history? Uh, how much of history we can consign to the past and how much we actually live in currently? Yes, I think it absolutely does. And, and the notion of, of the zombie or the undead <laughs> is one of the ways in which it gets articulated. Yeah. Um, there's a, I think it's a wonderful thing. I think it's, it's in Ta-Nehisi Coates, who, whom I use a lot, to, whose text I, um, the, the, in favor of reparations, I use a lot in that chapter as a kind of focus of my analysis, who talks of the undead. Um, and in fact, I, I think what, yes, what we're getting is a vision of history in which the past continues into the present um, in, in, in ways that uh, inform and uh, challenge and corrupt what uh, stands for a kind of better future. Uh, as long as that past is, is there and unrecognized and unaddressed, it continues to um, pervert the, the possibilities for equality and for justice. And I think it is a different vision, the vision of history that says there isn't a linear line of progress. There are all of these different places we have to look to see how, thing, how powerful groups are sorting out or claiming to represent the next stage of history, to represent the future. 
but who are not, but who are as interested in preserving their uh, position, their privilege, as they are in um, taking us to better times, to a more progressive world. Yeah. And in fact, you read us a quotation earlier from your book, and I came across, I think, a very apt quotation from Edward Syed just the other day that I think encapsulates the spirit of your last two chapters. He said, and I quote, appeals to the past are among the commonest of strategies and interpretations of the present. What animates such appeals is not only disagreement about what happened in the past and what the past was, but uncertainty about what the past really is past, over and concluded, or whether it continues, albeit in different forms, perhaps. That's a, that's a wonderful line, I think, very relevant um, to, to the conversation we're having right now. Yeah, absolutely perfect. And in fact, did you find, did you find that after you read the book, after you read my book? Yeah, I found it in another book, in fact. Um, and I just, it just struck me because I just finished your book and I started on that book. And, you know, there was, I didn't expect to find a, a quotation that apt. <laughs> Because that's, but that's what happened to me, happens to, I think once you've been alerted to thinking about these questions of time and history and, and justice and judgment, you find quotes that you might not have noticed before that become suddenly apt and relevant. Yeah. Uh, I, actually, it's happened to me since the book was published. There have been a couple of things that I've read and I thought, oh, if only I had read that before, I would have had it in the book <laughs> as well. So... And that's, that's another example. That Saeed quote is wonderful. It's, it's a, another example, exactly the kind of thing I think I was trying to argue. Well, you mentioned earlier in, in the podcast that when you were delivering this lecture at Columbia University, many of the questions you got were concerning your own personal opinions about what it means to render history's judgment. And I, I'm afraid I'll have to ask you a few questions in a similar vein. Now, with respect to rendering history's judgment or, or dealing with the consequences of history, where do you think we should go from here? What is the logical next step? I guess I think that there is no such thing as a judgment of history. Um, that, that what we need to do is say that we're making judgments based on certain ethical or moral principles that we hold. Um, and that um, those may or may, they may, some of them may have roots in history and in the, in the enlightenment or in other forms of, of, in other articulations of notions of equality or justice or the, you know, the, the, the ideals we aspire to. But it's, it's what we're involved in as political actors and as social beings is not the enactment of the judgment of history, but the attempt to realize certain moral and ethical principles that guide the actions that we that we take. And having sp spent so much of your career studying the past and a good part of the last three years looking at, you know, this concept of history's judgment, are you in any way optimistic or pessimistic about the future of humanity? Well, I grew up in a family in which despair was not an option. So <laughs> <laughs> I feel as if the, the legacy of my, of my own upbringing won't let me despair. But I feel like we're at a moment now where it's very hard to be optimistic. Uh, and I, I think my sense is that um, the necessity to act in the name of one's ethical principles rather than a belief that uh, an inevitable better future is coming is, is the ground on which I, I, I act. So I feel like action is necessary to defend these principles, e even, if, um, even if I can't say that a better future is inevitably going to arrive. I want a better future to happen but I think I'm um, both enough of a student of history and in the moment, a political person terribly anxious about what the next months in the United States are going to bring to feel like there's any guarantee. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, um, you mentioned about your role, not just as a student of history, but also someone who is deeply interested in the politics um, of your time. Do you find it difficult to strike a balance between 
being that dispassionate academic who's supposed to distance herself from her work and standing up for values that you truly believe in? I don't think there's a distinction between those two. I think the reason I do the work I do is because of the values I truly believe in. It doesn't mean that I write history as a kind of, of um, to prove my, <laughs> my, my, my beliefs, but I critically, I think of myself as a critical historian. And I think that what I mean by critical history is looking at the ways in which things we've taken, things that are taken to be common sense or taken for granted need to be interrogated, need to be questioned. So my work on gender, for example, is an example of that. You know, the common sense notions of what it meant to be man or woman um, need to be called into question and asked how they became common sense notions. The notion of the judgment of history that inspires these, these um, essays is uh, the question of how the judgment of history comes to be understood mm-hmm. as uh, a, a form of consolation, but also how it worked to, in fact, preclude the very uh, promise that it offered, the, the sort of contradiction of a, of a judgment of history that at the same time is a politically, um, a politically calculated attempt to protect something um, or, or protect privilege in a way that, uh, that maintains and, and continues it. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. There's a, a thing I quote from, from Foucault in, in there in which I say, I guess the position that, that seems most um, closest to my own right now is less one that says uh, the future, we're creating a better future than the one that says, um, I don't want to be governed like that. Uh, you know, that there's a form of government under which we're living now, uh, uh, ways of organizing life uh, that, that are not the ones by which I want to live. Um, and so that it feels like my position um, most of all. That is, I don't want to be governed like that. Of course, it means looking to the future because it means saying how I might want to be governed, but it's, it's, it's less future-oriented than it is present-oriented. So, that is, let's, let's sort of change what we have right now because it's an unacceptable way of, of organizing society. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a wonderful way um, to end, I think, this segment of the interview. And it does take us to our final question. Mm-hmm. Uh, normally, I ask my guests if they could interview someone for their new book in history, who would that be? And you actually answered it earlier in the interview. You suggested Insurgent, Universal- Insurgent Universality by Massimiliano Tomba. Um, is there any other writer whom, whose work you think is incredibly relevant to the topics we've talked about today? Yeah, the, the, another one, although the book is not out yet, it's, it's just being sort of written. <laughs> I, I read the manuscript of it, so I know about it. There's a historian named Gary Wilder who teaches at the Graduate Center at uh, the City University in New York. Yeah. I can't remember what, what he's calling that book. Um, but it's, it's about the, the different ways of thinking the future and of, of thinking the past. Um, and, and I think that, but another one that is just published in addition to, to Max Tomba's book is by Fadi, uh, Fadi Bardewil, and it's called something about disenchantment and revolution. It's Duke University Press. It's about the ways in which um, Lebanese socialists in the, who are Marxist Maoists in the 60s and 70s, but who live through the civil wars and the disenchantment of the 70s and 80s come to other uh, political positions. It's an incredibly um, smart and interesting analysis of the trajectory of a group of political leftists from um, socialism to an increasing engagement with Islamic, um, not religious particularly, but Islamic uh, philosophy and, and theory. So sort of from West to East, but, but it's, it's an extremely he, because he, he, writes the, um, he writes the history 
as they're living through these political conflicts. So it's at once how the sort of philosophy or theory is articulated in action and through action and disenchantment is, is something of a theme we've been addressing today. And it's a theme that he addresses directly in that, in that book. Sure. Um, and for listeners who might be interested, the full title is Revolution and Disenchantment, Arab Marxism and the Binds of Emancipation by Fadi A. Badawil. Um, in fact, Fadi was here on the New Books Network earlier in June to talk about this very book. So <laughs> if there is one episode you'd like to listen to, after yes. this, that should be the one, I suppose. That's great. I will definitely listen to it. Thank you. <laughs> well, I think we've spent a very good hour talking about a very broad range of topics. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you, Joan, and you've been a very gracious guest. I, we'd love to have you on the program again. Thank you. Thank you very much. And it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's really, it's always a pleasure to talk to somebody who's read my book carefully. I, <laughs> it, I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, on that note, thank you for your time and thanks for listening to this episode of New Books in History.